0: seen Psalms 23 so, so many times, or I've seen this passage or seen that passage so many times, when I, when, I, when I look at it, it's easy for me just to read through it real quick and get some great points and move on to the next chapter. And this series has challenged me to look at it in a much deeper fashion, and, I, and I've benefited a lot of, from that, and, and I appreciate these guys and all the comments they've made to make this, this study b- to be what it has been, so my prayer is that it's, that it's been the same for you. Tonight we go to a chapter that as the rest of the chapters is beautiful for its, in its own ways. But we have a special chapter tonight because we have, uh, we have multiple passages from here that can be found in the New Testament as well in the actions and the thoughts and even the words of Christ himself. So as we read tonight, we can have that on our minds that this can directly apply to Jesus in so many ways. Um, So before we get to the chapter, though, as we've been doing, I'd like to open it up. Are there any thoughts on some superscript or any of the authorship of this chapter uh, before we get into
1: our text? For me, I guess, when it comes to the authorship, you know, we see that it's David there, a psalm of David. Psalm 40 says at the beginning. And any time you come at a psalm that is written by David, you come at it with the context of what he has been through in his life, obviously. Uh, the experiences that he has had, both positive and negative, we don't necessarily know exactly at what point in David's life that he wrote this psalm, he, he wrote these thoughts down, uh, but we do know uh, all the things that David went through in his life and the context that comes with uh, the deep, uh, grave sin that he had in his life uh, very much painted much of the things that he wrote. Uh, much, especially the Psalms, when we come at the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms are uh, in response to or in the midst of or uh, following the sin he had with Bathsheba, the, the, the sin of having Uriah murdered and the different things that he did uh, to distance himself and separate himself from God. And I think maybe perhaps as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to see him in one of those times when he mentions things like the horrible pit he is in or the miry clay he is in or all these different things, this imagery uh, metaphorically that he has found himself in due to his separation he has caused from God and this relationship he has with God. And so when we look at this psalm and we look at all the psalms of David, we got to understand that context back in First and Second Samuel and understand where he's coming from. That's really the only thing I have on authorship or the superscript.
2: Another thing I think that's worth mentioning is uh, the last fourth of this psalm, really verses 13 through 17, are essentially repeated in Psalm 70. Psalm 70 in its entirety is essentially verses 13 through 17 of Psalm 40, with some minor variations there. And, and that's very interesting, because Psalm 70's superscript is almost identical to this one. It mentions the fact that it's a psalm by David, that it's to the choir master. But Psalm 70 adds this little phrase that it's for the memorial offering. Now, I don't really have a lot to elaborate on why it says that, but it's interesting because it it appears that David has has written this psalm and he's taken part of it and used it for another psalm uh, that has a more specific purpose. So I I just throw that out there to make you aware that at times the uh, psalms— uh, aren't necessarily original. They're, they're adapting from previous psalms. I, I mentioned when we did, I did a sermon on Psalm 100 that every statement in Psalm 100 actually appears somewhere else in the psalms. And, and so David likely wrote Psalm 40 and then uh, used part of it to, to in, for, intentionally with Psalm 70 because if you go to Psalm 70, it leads well into the psalms that follow it, particularly Psalm 71. Um, so there, there may have been some intention intent there in uh, u- utilizing a portion of this.
0: You know, I think the only thing I would add to that is it's kind of going to what Ben, what what you were saying, and the fact that we don't really know the situation David was it, it, David is in. It could be a it could be a ton of different situations that we have record of, or countless times that we don't have record of. I mean, he he finds himself in a lot of caves throughout his life, a lot of pits in his life. We we you could start, you know, all the way in, when he's hiding from. Uh, Saul in caves when he's having to run to Gath when he's surrounded by his enemies there when he's a king and he's surrounded by his enemies so it's just fascinating that either whether it's emotional or, sp- or spiritual like with Bathsheba or physically you could apply this to so many different walks of life so even before we get into the chapter all of us in, our, in this room can go ahead and start to look at how this has applied to us in the past or how it can apply to us now because much like David sometimes we do find ourselves physically, emotionally, spiritually in times that are kind of trying so with that being said, let's go ahead and start a passage. I'm going to read um, from New American Psalm chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and will trust In the Lord. We have a lot of blessings in this passage, things that God has done for David, but before we get to that, I kind of want to open it up to you guys first. What's the significance of the first verb, the first action mentioned in this passage of David saying, and I waited, numerically, patiently or intently uh, for the Lord? What's the significance of that?
3: Okay, Um, I think uh, one word is uh, standing out to me. Uh, in verse 3, the word trust. Uh, We'll talk about the word again uh, in verse 4 too, but before we do that, uh, I would like to uh, mention it. Uh, The trust here, the word uh, originally uh, means reliance or hope. Uh, This trust doesn't mean necessarily belief uh, after... Uh, some you know discerning or discernment of something or uh, considering of the truth, uh, but it means just uh, taking something as uh, as to rely on, taking something as uh, uh, the security of the person. Uh, it is something the person is confident about that, it will save him or deliver him in the situation when the person is uh, in difficulty. So I I, I think the word uh, trust uh, tells me that um, David has this kind of trust and reliance or hope in God. And that word, uh, to me, sets the, sets the tone of this psalm.
1: You know, I grew up on a farm, and many times uh, a lot of my thoughts are, are, can surround around that because you learn so much on a farm. You learn so much uh, having cattle. And when we, had, when we had cows, when we got up to a, a lot of cows in our herd, we we realized that when we would put them all together and try to split them up and give them their shots or, or do this or do that with them and feed them, a lot of times when we would put them in that corral, the, the, the mud would just become, to me, like this miry clay verse 2 talks about. If you've ever stepped in miry clay or, or this muck mud, you know what David's talking about. You ever step in mud and it just, it, it surrounds your feet, and you cannot lift your feet up out of the mud. That happened so many times on the farm, and we would get stuck. I would have to grab my brother's arms on the outside of the mud, and they would pull me out, and there's my shoe down in the mud, right? Socks ruined all day long because there I am in the miry muck, this mud that it, it, it just swallows your shoes. It, swall- it keeps your feet. It doesn't want to let go. And I, I understand that imagery that David's bringing in this text here. He says he, he found himself in a horrible pit out of a miry clay in verse 2. David, that's how he saw himself either you know, physically, I think he's talking spiritually, in this horrible pit of despair, this muck that doesn't want to let go of him, doesn't want him to be able to leave and is clinging on to him. And that's the imagery I see David talking about. And yet, even though he found himself in this horrible pit, in this miry clay, it says he had patience. That, to me, that makes no sense because every single time I found myself in that kind of mud, in, in, in that type of clay, or that type of situation... I was as impatient as it got. I wanted to get out. I wanted to get out of the mud. I wanted to get out of the situation. I wanted to get myself out of the mud and on to to safe ground again because I felt like I was just getting pulled down lower and lower into the mud. But David waited patiently. David waits patiently for the Lord even when it makes no sense. I think there's something to be learned there. David understood that when it comes to this pit, only God could bring him out of it. When it comes to this miry muck and mud, only God could bring him out on the other side of it. It didn't matter how hard he struggled, how hard he tried to get out of it, he was just going to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And so he waits patiently for the Lord. And that's what blesses him in the end. That patience pays off, as we often hear in our life. And he did it at a time when it made no sense for him to be patient. How many times are we found in a pit in our lives, and we are as impatient as it gets? Lord, get me out of this situation now. Get me out of the situation now. Help me get out of the situation as soon as possible.
2: David is patient for the Lord, patient that the Lord will deliver
1: him. And that's exactly what the Lord does.
2: The thing that really uh, was interesting to me is how much in David has spoken about waiting in the lead up to chapter 40. Because chapters 37 through 40 all deal with the subject of waiting. In chapter 37, uh, verse 7, David says, Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. In verse 9 of the same chapter, he says that those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In chapter 38, verse 15, he says, uh, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. In chapter 39, he, he says, And now, O Lord, this is chapter 39, verse 7, Now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And finally, he gets to chapter 40. And here's what I think is significant. He starts off the chapter by saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. And by verse 2, he's saying, the Lord answered. The Lord came through. I, I waited from in chapter 37. I waited in chapter 38. I waited in chapter 39. In chapter 40, my waiting pays off. And nobody, nobody had to wait like David had to wait, if you really think about it. Here's a guy crowned king when somebody else is on the throne And he has to wait years before his anointing has any effect on his life he's just sitting in the wings over there waiting for his opportunity to become king nobody knows what it's like to wait like david and then david doesn't just get to wait in comfort david waits as a fugitive running from saul a fugitive hiding in caves as has been alluded to nobody knows waiting like david and what's significant here is how he talks about not only that, that he had to do this patiently, but it pays off. In the end, God draws me out of the pit, God hears me, and, uh, and, and, and God, um, God is to be praised because he answers my wait. That's
0: kind of like what I was thinking, Kyle, in the sense that when I, when I saw this passage, one of the first things I thought about was 1 Samuel 13, when Saul's first mistake as a king, before he goes in and, and destroys the city of much more than you know, God asked him to, and, and takes some captives with him like God asked him to, is actually his first mistake, 1 Samuel 13, is failing to wait on Samuel. Samuel says, I'll meet you at the end of the week, and we'll make sacrifices before battle. And Saul grows out of patience, go, goes ahead and makes the burnt offering, and then Samuel shows up and kind of calls him out for that. And so, the very first mistake that the first king of Israel made is failing to wait on God. And then, his predecessor, David, like you were saying, from day one is waiting. He is characterized and maybe, maybe not really, you know, really known for this, but I mean, probably the most patient waiter in the Bible when it comes to the amount of time he had to wait for that promise to be seen. And it don't, it's almost like and as he was waiting, he was getting worse. It's not like, you know, say, hey, you'll be king and then, you know, Saul just groomed him to be king and, you know, wait ten years. It's like, you, you know, it's like waiting in the mud, but you were getting deeper and deeper in the mud and deeper in the mud. You know, that would call us to cry out more. And that's the other thing I thought about is that this patience so this waiting that David is, is saying right now isn't passive. He's not just twiddling his thumbs to the background and going, well, the Lord's going to save me at some point. Look what he says at the bottom of verse 2. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. As David is waiting, he's crying out to God. And we're going to see this come up again later on in this chapter. But David's not saying, okay, Lord, I'm stuck in the mud. When it's good for you, I'm, I'll be here. No, he is going to his king. He is going to his God. And he's letting it be known, I am not in a good position. I need your help. Later on, he'll say, I am poor and needy. I'm afflicted and needy. And so that, I think that's something we can take away from today. If we're in a situation where we go, you know what? Well, well, I'll just wait for that next door to open. It's, well, are you going to God on behalf of your situation? Are you looking for help with the people around? Are you actively waiting? Or are you just kind of sitting on the side going, well, he'll figure it out for me sooner or later. And I think this is important because the first thing we see is the waiting. It's the patience. And then comes the blessings. So what are your thoughts on some of the blessings David gets in this passage? Maybe some of the things that stuck out to you in that.
1: You know, in verse 2 he talks about exactly like Kyle was alluding to, when he cried out, When he waited on the Lord, when he waited patiently, the Lord delivered. The Lord delivered in ways that David uh, knew he would, but at the same time couldn't even comprehend. You know, let's just read verse 2 and 3. He also brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. So for me, you know, that God takes him out of the pit, puts him on the rock and establishes his steps, just like we were talking about. He was sinking deeper and deeper and deeper in this muck. And then God just reaches down and puts him out on firm ground again. But to me, the blessing that that I want to talk about is verse 3, putting a new song in David's mouth. God, that's exactly what God does for us after we leave the pit. despair. God changes our attitude, changes our hearts from hopeless to jubilant, from total loss to the most extreme joy in our life. This is this idea of putting a new song in David's mouth. He no longer has to sing this sad song anymore. He no longer has to Uh, think about that bottomless pit of despair in the miry clay, he can think about this new song that the Lord has put on his lips, and he's going to sing it. Not only has God given him a new song, he's going to sing it, he's going to praise God, he says many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord because of this new song that has been put on his mouth. I don't know how many times I've been in a situation where I've been brought out of something Uh, I believe by the Lord and I rejoice and I understand what David is talking about in verse 3. Singing this new song, you don't have to sing the sad song, you don't have to think about the past anymore, you can just focus on this new, great, happy, amazing song because God has delivered you. That's where David is here.
2: The, the blessing that really stood out to me actually is at the end of verse 1. When I cried out, he heard me. God's attentiveness to uh, David is, is the blessing that stands out to me because it's a blessing that's available to you and I right now. That God hears us, that God listens to us, that God is attentive to us. You know, there's a, a passage that David writes a few chapters earlier. It's Psalm 34, verse 15 and 16 David said the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The the inference of what David is saying back in Psalm 34 verse 15 and 16 is that God is attentive to the righteous but he's inattentive to the unrighteous. That's a blessing for us to consider the fact that God The creator of this world is willing to bend his ear to us mere mortal beings. Think back to um, Abraham's opportunity to negotiate with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. God did not have to go tell Abraham that I'm destroying these cities. There There was no reason for God to have to do that. God chose to do that. Because God wanted to include Abraham, and God was willing to listen to Abraham as Abraham pled for this city to be spared. That's how great our God is. It is a blessing that he wants to hear from us. He invites us to converse with him, and to do so about everything, according to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, and to do so at all times, according to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, Our God blesses us by simply being willing and available to listen to us.
3: I think David had the, uh, I mean, knew that God is faithful and he will deliver him uh, from the situation he was in. So he hoped in God, and his hope was his righteousness and uh, as uh, like as I said, the hope could be also translated into faith here. Uh, the word uh, can, be, uh, can mean to uh, both of them, you know, hope and trust and faith. So because David had that faith and hope in God, and God listened to him as Carl pointed out, and, and David could be... Uh, could get the uh, grace of God, and he could be delivered by God. So I think the greatest blessing of the person like David is his uh, faith, putting whole hope in God. And this psalm, in my my view, this psalm is talking about that, how we should put our hope in God. There, there, I mean, uh, it's, like, how can I say, you know, we, we, can, we can have no ground to believe in God. We can have no uh, reason to believe in God. But we, we just can do it. If we can do it for no reason, I mean, because we have heard the gospel, According to the gospel, we we just put our whole hope and whole trust in God. He is faithful, and he delivers us. I mean, I think David knew it, and that was David's great blessing. Because of that belief, that trust, God delivered David.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great, Mingyu. I think even in times where by earthly mindset it wouldn't make sense, to put trust in God or what makes sense to put something you couldn't see. We know because of the way our God is that there's always good reason because we've heard the gospel and we know how he acts, that we can always believe in him. Let's keep reading our text tonight. Let's go through verses 4 and 5. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud or to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us there is none to compare with you. And if I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. My first thought, my first question on this passage is what, do, what does it really mean when David says, how blessed is the man who has, tr- who has made the Lord his trust? And what does that mean? And kind of how do we go about doing that today in our own lives?
3: Okay, may I say hmm? first? Okay, as I said, the trust means hope or security. Uh, In verse 2, he already said, I mean, the psalmist already said that, uh, making my steps secure. He was seeking the security in God. That's what it means. The Hebrew word batak doesn't mean the belief uh, after we have thought about something, after we have considered something, but it means just trust, the absolute trust. So uh, many times, the Septuagint uh, translates this word word into hope. So it is hope. You know I didn't do anything worthwhile to God, but I hope in God, because there is no way that I, I can get out of this situation, but I just believe God, and I just hope God to help me. This is the kind of attitude uh, of the person here that he puts his trust and his hope in God, and God listens to him, and God attends uh, to the person, and he is faithful, and he does something to help him, help the person. So uh, making, uh, making the Lord his trust, I mean, making the Lord our trust means uh, in First Peter, uh, Peter says that set your whole hope in God. I think it means that. You know, we need to put our whole hope in God. You know, we may have done something wrong. We have, we have been uh, very short of His glory. But we, we have to trust. We have to put our whole trust in God. Regardless of how we were, it doesn't matter. But since now, if we turn back to Him and if we put our whole hope in Him, He is faithful. He is. He loves us and He saves us. So that's the great, great blessing that David is talking about. We have to put our whole hope in God, and He will bless us. Uh,
1: just for me, in, in verse four, I see. I mean, your question was how do we put our trust in in the Lord the way David did? My question is, how can we not? (laughs) How can we not put our trust in the Lord who delivers David? The same way he delivered David, he delivers us. So we have no choice but to put our trust in this amazing God that is able to pull us out of the pit, able to pull us out of the buck of our life, and set us on dry ground, set us on a rock, and establish our steps. Um, That's exactly what David does. He puts that trust, he puts that uh, trust in the Lord uh, to pull him out of that pit because he knows no matter what he does, he can't pull himself out of it. No matter what his friends can do, they can't pull him out of it. No matter anybody else, Around him, no one can pull him out of this situation, but God. And so we have no
2: other choice
1: in our life than to do the same thing David did and put our trust in the Lord.
2: So, so when I when I hear this terminology, "made the Lord his trust," I think of the word confidence. That he, his confidence was in the Lord's ability uh, to act in his life. Think back to the whole Goliath scene. When David arrived there, no one had confidence in the Lord to overcome Goliath for them. You, you have King Saul there uh, shivering in his boots. He's the biggest guy in Israel. He should be the one going up against Goliath. He's the most well-equipped guy. He's got all the equipment that he g- tries to give to David, and, and David can't use it. David walks out there with inferior weaponry. With, with inferior size, with inferior military skill, and defeats Goliath. Not because of himself, but because he has confidence that the Lord will see him through. That, to me, is, is it, in a sense, the hope that Mingu's talking about, the, the trust that Ben's talking about, is, is the ability to have confidence that the Lord can and will deliver.
0: Absolutely. I, th- I think there's we put trust, and we make someone our trust, and we have confidence in that person over. When, when there's conflicting decisions, and we go with one, that's putting or making them the one that has our trust. And I think that's exactly what the point David's is making, because he then instantly contrasts it with blessed is the man who does this, and has not turned to the proud. And so blessed is the man who makes the Lord the one you find your security, hope, and faith in, compared to if you were putting your confidence in just normal men around you or normal situations around you. Let's keep reading in verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. Now we obviously have this passage here in the Old Testament. It's coming out of David's mouth or through his pen here. But we also see this echoed through the actions and the, the purpose of Christ in Hebrews chapter 10. So with this thought, this notion, what God's true intent is for his sermons, one's found in the Old Testament, now obviously echoed in the life of Christ in the New Testament. What do we as Christians today living under God's will, what do we learn about God by this notion being applied to these two men?
1: I think we see consistency from God in that, in that way that... The same way uh, God did not desire his sacrifice or offering or burnt offering, uh, he did not require, verse 6. You did not require these things. What what David's saying is, at a certain point, God doesn't care how much sacrifice you make or how much offering you can give or all these different uh, boxes you can check. God cares about your heart. God didn't require those things from David. What he required was David's heart, David's committance. Uh, uh, is that a word? I'm going to go with it. Committance. <laughs> he, he, he demanded, he required uh, David's devotion and his full faith, his full heart, not just some of it. Uh, he, he required David's loyalty, David's obedience. And to me, that's what I'm seeing in this passage. And it's the same thing for us today. Do we simply go through our life checking the box? You know, it doesn't matter how many times we show up to worship, if we're here every time the doors are open, if we're worshiping without our hearts, if we're worshiping just to check a box, if we're doing this just to check a box, or going to this thing to just check a box, then it doesn't matter what we're doing. God is not pleased. But when we come to worship, with our heart. To show our loyalty and our devotion to God. That's what God requires. That's, that's the, as the Bible talks about, the weightier matter. Like you're, you're, you're missing uh, the forest for the trees if you think God cares more about you showing up to worship. God does care about that. But what he cares about is your heart in worship. And showing that it is truly in spirit and in truth, not just to check a box. I think that's what David is saying here. God wanted my heart, and that's what I gave him.
0: That's right, and I think we can see more evidence for that in the very next line. You didn't want the sacrifice and meal offering. That's not what you desired. It's my ear that you've opened, or some translations may have say, say pierced. And if you're familiar with Exodus chapter 21, we have this beautiful story of when a servant has served its time to its master, they have the option to turn around and to offer their loyalty out of their own personal decision. I, I have the freedom to leave you, master, but I'd like to continue and live in your household and serve you based on my own personal responsibility and love for you. And they would have this, you know, they had this uh, action of, you know, piercing their ear with a, with a nail to their doorpost. And that's what David is saying. It's not this, this, these daily sacrifices that, yes, are still important, and that's what you desire to some degree, but it's this personal, out of my own obligation of loyalty. It's not that lamb. It's, it's me that you're wanting. I, I think that's spot on.
3: Uh, I think it is interesting that David used ear as a figure uh, to talk about uh, what he wants to talk about. Ear means, you know, listening. Ear uh, means the function of listening. So we have to listen to God. And verse 7 says, then I said, behold, I I have come here. I have come. Uh, In our language, we can say that I am here. In the score of the book, it is written of me. Uh, Many translations uh, said like this, uh, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, but a few uh, scroll, uh, uh, translations says that uh, it is written uh, to me or toward me or for me. So there are things that we have to listen to in the scroll of the book. In other words, in the, law of the, in the book of the law. So uh, David, what David is saying, if we take that translation, then... You know, we have to listen to God's word, and keeping God's word, living by the words means that I am giving offering to God, the right offering to God. Uh, right offering, right sacrifice is not just the action of the, the you know action of the law or works of the law, but we have to put our whole heart, and it is uh, as putting our whole heart, we have to keep His commandments. We have to keep His uh, statutes. And that's what David was doing, and he, he said in verse 8, I delight to do your will. I mean, David's delight was to, God's, to do God's will. And that's what, that should be our delight, too. Doing God's will should be our delight, too. So that is the right offering, right worship, right sacrifice that we have to offer even nowadays in, uh, in, this, in this day. And I believe that that's what Jesus was pointing out, too.
0: Amen. Let's we'll keep reading in verse 9 and we'll go through verse 11. I proclaim glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know, and I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. One thing I kind of found interesting in this passage, and you all can make comment on this or just make any general comments on this passage, these three verses, is this connection between David saying, I did not restrain my lips or I did not hide the righteousness in my heart, that I did not hide language. And then in verse 11, he turns it on to God of... And, O oh, Lord, you will not withhold your compassion from me. David makes this connection here that I, just as I have not hidden any of your laws, your commands, your righteousness within me, and I have poured it out, Lord, you responded by pouring that back out to me. And it's that relationship of not just putting something in their heart or not just promising it for later, but revealing it right then and pouring it out to the people around you. And the one comment I'll make before I pass it on is this thought right here. Um, Verse 10. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I think there's a there's a big twi- takeaway there in this thought. Simply put, that I think we can all be a little guilty of that at times where we have God's righteousness, we see the importance of God's righteousness in our heart, and we even treasured it, it within us, but we keep it within us. You know, I think it's great when we try to convert people or talk to people by our example. I think that's a first step in a lot of ways. But I think it's sad sometimes that we say, okay, well that's enough. Just my example, it's all it can be, and I'll be great, and I'll be a nice and kind person. And that's, I'm not downplaying that at all. But there does come a point where we have to actively do something and say something. And I think there's a, there's a mark of maturity when you say, okay, I, see, I have the righteousness of God within me, and I don't want to hide that. I don't want to keep this light under a bushel, oh no, right? Uh, I want to reveal this. I'm not going to restrain my lips. And with, when that's my response... And I know the Lord will not restrain or withhold any compassion or love
1: for me as well.
0: So any thoughts on these three verses or anything about that?
1: I'll just quickly say one, one small thing. I feel like David really wants to be consumed with God's righteousness, with God's goodness, with the things of God so that he can stay out of the pit. Hmm. He knows if he's consumed with what God is, is, is giving his loving kindness, his truth that preserves him. Verse 11, he knows if he's consuming himself in those things, he'll stay away from that pit he found himself in.
0: Let's finish our chapter tonight. Verse 12, for evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together, who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored, who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. What can we take away from David's dependence in this passage? I mean, he ends it by saying, I am afflicted and needy. Please help me. What can we learn from his dependence in this? Dependence. The, the,
2: the one thing that stands out to me is, is David's humility here to say, the English Standard Version says, I am poor and needy. To admit that you, you can't do it yourself. Because that's a lot of times our biggest struggle is, is we have that that pick ourselves up by the bootstrap mentality. And, uh, and David here is acknowledging what I'm dealing with only the Lord can conquer. And, and we need to be able to uh, recognize that in our own spiritual battles is that there are some things that, that you can't uh, defeat by yourself that you need um, the Lord's help with. And it starts here for David by saying, I am poor and needy you are my help and my deliverer. It's a recognition that I can't do it, but you can. And, and I think that's significant here.
3: I think um, uh, we, the God we trust in is much bigger than we think or believe. You know, David says that the evils encompassed him and you know he had a lot of thing, iniquities, but God is greater than that. You know, as long as we uh, turn our heart to Him, God can save us. God can cleanse us from the sins, and God can deliver us from the evil. So this um, psalm tells me that um, really uh, God is great. God is great. God is much, much greater than we think, and He can deliver us. So what we have to do, only the thing that we have to do is to turn ourselves to Him, trusting in Him.
0: I think one thing I take away from this passage is that it's okay to feel overwhelmed. David is a textbook example of of someone who put all his hope in God. I mean, he is trusting and waiting and and, uh, just putting all his hope in, in God, and yet he still says at the end of verse 12, my heart has failed me. And that's okay to feel overwhelmed in the presence of God because he's not expecting you to have to carry that. It's okay to say I'm courageous in the Lord, I'm strong in the Lord, I've got my hope in the Lord, but at the same time feel completely overwhelmed and heartless with what's going on or just failing in what's going on. We don't have to act, we don't have to act, act tough to God. We can humbly approach this dawn and say, I am poor, I'm afflicted, I am needy, I am without heart, I, my heart is broken. And, I can, that's, that is, and that doesn't take away the fact that I'm still putting all this courage and faith and hope and trust in the Lord. These two things can happen at the same time. You can put all your trust in the Lord but still feel overwhelmed at times. But at the end of the day, it comes back to that trust that you don't have to be stuck in that mud, but that feeling while you're there is very real. And it's okay to feel that Continue to put your trust in Him. Any last comments or your biggest takeaway from this passage before we wrap it up?
2: The one thing that just stands out to me is this concept of of waiting and that um, sometimes the most challenging aspect of faith is waiting on God's timetable. Uh, In other words, sometimes the most challenging part of, of, of faith is not believing that God can but accepting the when of God, when he will do this or when he will do that. If you're, when, the, the patience factor can be such an extraordinarily difficult part of faith. And yet, here's David, and there's one statement he makes in a totally different psalm. It's Psalm 31, verse 15 that encompasses the right mindset towards uh, waiting on the Lord. He says in Psalm thirty-one fifteen, My times are in your hands. And understanding that God's the one in control, that's what David brought to the table and why he could write a psalm like this that, that addresses his, his weight on the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances.
3: Yeah, um, some, sometimes uh, we think that uh, is God able to solve this problem? Would, would God be... Uh, willing to do this for me. But God is greater than that. And we have to believe that. And again, I say, want to say that, you know, we have to believe that. God is greater than that, greater, much greater than we think. And, and, and we should put our whole hope in Him, and He will be faithful to us
1: biggest takeaway for me tonight is this idea of the pit. This horrible pit of miry clay that many of us find ourselves in spiritually from time to time. When we feel like the harder we try to dig ourselves out, the deeper and deeper we go down into that muck. And that's exactly where David, verse 12, says, Innu- innumerable evils surround me. My heart fails me. You can see how totally inept he is to get himself out of the pit. And to me, the biggest takeaway from this psalm is the realization that only God can bring us out of the horrible pits that we place ourselves in. The truth is, we can either be patient, like David was and allow God to pull us out, or we can continue to be stubborn and try to dig ourselves out, and we're going to sink deeper and deeper into that mire of our own sin. And the choice is really ours. If we want to trust in God or put our trust in ourselves. And there's a lot of people around us in our life that may be in a pit that we have no idea they're in because they're trying to be so strong, trying to put across this image to the world that everything's fine and dandy with me. But in reality, inwardly, they're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. We need to seek those people out. We need to try to help those people, because if it hasn't happened yet, it will, and you'll find yourself in that pit refusing to get any help. And I think that's what this psalm is all about. Psalm 40 is really all about God is the only one that can bring us out of the pits we place ourselves in.
0: Amen. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate your thoughts tonight. Thank you. I hope Everybody, like us, was able to find some relatability with David tonight in a lot of different ways. I'm going to let Kyle close it out with prayer, and I know you have an announcement to make as
2: well. Just real quick, next Sunday we've got a very special roundtable. We're bringing back by popular demand the retired ministers of the roundtable. I'll be joined—well, I know these two guys are heading out to Freed's Lectureship next week, and so uh, I'm going to be joined by Brother Gene Clover, Brother John Iverson Sr., and Brother Mike Gifford. Uh, and, re- and we're going to tackle the most challenging psalm of all, Psalm chapter 23. So be sure to join us next week as we glean from the magnificent wisdom of our retired ministers and we study the most well-known psalm that there is. Let's close out in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for, for giving us this beautiful text to study, this, this book of psalms. Uh, we, uh, we are grateful that we can peer into the life and the mind of individuals like David and, and learn from them about the relationship we should have with you. Thank you, Lord, for being the one who hears us. Thank you, Lord, for being the one who rescues us. Thank you for being the one who gets us out of the pit. And Lord, we know that among us, there are some that are there right now. There are some who are just struggling and they're stuck in the mire. And Lord, They don't know what to do. We pray that you help deliver them, and we pray that you help each and every one of us to provide whatever assistance we can in those circumstances. And Lord, help each and every one of us to know that we can always cry out to you. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to come to this earth to live and to die so that the ultimate pit can be escaped. And Lord help us help us to live like him more every day. It is through his name that we offer this prayer.